Hello listeners, I'm Logan McLean, and this is OJT On The Job Training. It's a podcast where I, a rookie journalist, practice my craft by interviewing passionate people about their projects. Natasha Penteluk was here last month to introduce herself and her background in science. Today she gets into her master's research around the invasive Prussian carp. We talk about the role of citizen science, the challenges of crafting a survey, and the political climate around Alberta's rivers. Listen after the interview for this month's progress report about my long battle against perfectionism. Well, you know some things and are trying to find out some things too. Let's talk about your masters. Now, before we get into this though, uh, I'm going to have to interrupt you a few times because when we talked about it before, this is definitely heavy on the science stuff. So I'll have to slow you down here and there to keep, uh, my dear listeners are very smart people, but just want to make sure everyone's following. For sure. For sure. Yes. I, um, I will, I will, I, you know, it, it's one of those things that we, we were talking today in lab meeting about how, um, it used to be that scientists talked all sciencey to each other. And if they really had to, if they're talking to a public audience, um, then they, they would maybe try to find the most difficult words and try to find lesser versions of them to use. Um, and how silly that is and how, you know, nowadays we're really switching to always use the most simple language possible. And if you're going to use a more complex word, it has to really deserve it. It has to really be needed. Um, and otherwise, even if your audience understands all the words you're using, the bigger they are, the less approachable everything seems. Um, in reality, most science, if they just used simpler words, it's not hard to understand. If those gosh darn scientific papers just used more basic language, they wouldn't hurt the brain so much and like to, to really get through. So I'm, I, 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 will, I will try to, 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 to live what I preach and try not to be needlessly uh, you know, crazy with the language I use. You know, it's funny on that subject, we actually had, I only had to take like, like seven or eight actual, like maybe like 10 actual classes for journalism. And one of them was science and the media, which is entirely about how to deal with scientists and how to deal with, uh, controversial issues like vaccines, climate change, uh, tobacco, stuff like that. So it is, it's a real issue, that communication side, where scientists, like you said, are good with communicating with each other, but then to get that out to the lay people. And the thing is, the intermediary between the scientists and the public is me, who most, not most, but an awful lot of journalists will uh, take the fun-sounding part of the abstract, read none of the study, and make that their headline. And then it just, that's the reason every single thing causes cancer and everything cures cancer. Yeah, um, it's it is difficult. I think that one thing that uh, and the lab that I'm part of talks about scientific communication all the time, which is great because that's you know it's also the background that I come from. Is um, it it's so hard when you, when you're the researcher, you know, people say, oh, just do the cliff notes. What's important? Like, what's key to understanding things? And of course, you know, I'm in the middle of it. Everything feels important. Everything. Yeah is key to understanding the big picture. And it's so hard when you're in the middle of it to back up and say, no, but what are the takeaway messages here? Um, and it's so hard to, to pinpoint that. Uh, and it is, it is so easy for when a scientist is talking about their research or a certain field for the person listening to take away what might not have been the best key message. 
Well, let's. Um, how about you give me the simplified version that you just said is hard, and then we'll kind of dig into it a bit. Awesome. Uh, just tell me, first of all, where you're doing this at and what the topic is. So I'm at the University of Alberta in Stephanie, Dr. Stephanie Green's lab, um, and I am researching the role of Albertan anglers in tracking and controlling the invasive Prussian carp. Um, Prussian carp is a fish, and uh, what I it, it kind of looks a lot like a goldfish. Um, they're both uh, different species of the same genus, um, and they look really, really similar. Um, and but I'm focusing on the Prussian carp here. Uh, the kind of two main things that I'm looking at in my project are first of all, what factors, social or otherwise affect an angler's willingness or likeliness to report aquatic invasive species such as Prussian carp. Um, and then the other part of the, the research, kind of part two, is the to what extent can sighting reports of Prussian carp or goldfish by anglers capture the actual spread of invasive fish? Um, yeah, so that's sort of, that's sort of the, uh, the 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 summarizing of my research. Um, I can tell you more about those two things, how I go about trying to answer those questions, um, whatever you if you'd be interested in. Okay, so the basic idea is you're trying to understand what the impact of people who are fishing is on this invasive species. Um, I am looking at... Um, here, there's so uh, there's invasive fish in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Nowhere else in North America yet, but uh, Prussian carp is all across Europe now um, and has not done good things. And so it's like, holy moly, they're here in Alberta and Saskatchewan. It's the foothold for all of North America. Zoic scoop. Um, so uh, there's in order to figure out where they are. Normally, you would use professional biologists, um, and you can do it by various different ways. You can go kind of fishing for them. You can use nets to catch them. And the method that I used was uh, in sampling water bodies to find fragments of their DNA. Um, but all those methods are expensive and use professionals and you know government money and all those sort of things. But the other way that you could maybe figure out where invasive species such as the Prussian carp are, um, is to ask the people that are in those environments all the time. In this situation, it's anglers. There's more than 270,000 anglers in Alberta. And uh, if they're able to identify Prussian carp while they're fishing, if they, had a, if they were to report that somewhere, then maybe there's a more affordable sort of citizen science approach to figuring out what the spread of invasive species are. Um, but of course, this kind of leads to two questions, right? This is, well, can that be done? Would those maps be useful? Would they cover the needed area? Um, would they be accurate? And then the other question is, would the anglers even report if they found, you know, what, if, if they're, if, what affects an angler's willingness to report invasive species that they find? So it's not about the impact that the fishers are having on the fish. It's about um, how much they can 
as you're saying, report to you, uh, tracking and controlling them. Yeah. So I think you told me before that one of the issues with that is how how do you like will people even participate? How do you get them to uh, to respond? How's that going? Yeah. So kind of the to answer that kind of first question of uh, what affects an angler's willingness to report. Um, I created and distributed a big survey for anglers asking a wide range of questions. Um, And these questions covered lots of different topics, uh, demographics, use of technology to engage in angling, sense of belonging to a community or the angling community, fishing habits and skills, perspectives on the fisheries, their emotional connection to the fishery, and their perceived need for action to be taken to protect the fishery. So kind of those main kind of categories, ask a bunch of questions, and then I'm using a bunch of different analysis methods to not only get a feel for how all those different aspects relate to willingness to report, but also kind of how they interact with each other. And hopefully out of that, I can really get at what's going on here. So is it, um, you know, is it if they think that uh if oh what's it it's it's so funny this is a good example of me being like I've gone through so many it's such a complex issue for me now because I'm so intimately aware with all these questions how complex these relationships are turning out to be um but for example um as previous work has shown investigating what makes people engage in conservation related behaviors such as reporting an invasive fish is a very complicated web of both internal and external factors. And I'm still at the point in my research where I'm trying to untangle that web uh, for the aspects that I at least kind of looked at. And so far, of course, it's still looking like it's more complicated than just, well, if we tell them they should do this thing, they will. And of course, it can kind of be hard for me to learn because I came from a background of education outreach where we kind of just a lot of the time we left it simply at well if we tell them they should do something they'll do it you know if we tell people to recycle they'll recycle if we tell people to report invasive fish they'll report invasive fish and it's it's easy to believe that that's the case but it's not as straightforward as that um in my research for the things that i was looking at so far it looks like someone's emotional attachment to the fishery like how personal the condition of the fishery is to them, as well as their perceived need for action to be taken in order to protect the fishery. Uh, These kind of two things are rising up in my analysis so far as really key players in predicting their willingness to report. Um, But of course, the story is is one of me, a researcher, uh, but also a student in a field that has a lot to figure out. And um, I, you know, they always say that once you're done your master's, you're ready to do your master's. Um, if I could go back, I'd ask lots of different questions and ask them in different ways as well, because it's really an exploratory experience of me trying to untangle this web that really doesn't want to be untangled. Um, you've used the term anglers a couple of times. Is that to distinguish between like industrial fishing? Are these like hobby fishermen? Yeah. Yeah, these are, I didn't necessarily ask if they, um, you know, are making a living off of it, but the, like, industrial, there's no industrial fishing in Alberta. Right, so Um, they're the folks with the hip waders and the fly rod. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if people do not have boats or whatever, it's just, yeah. Because if I use the word, like, you know, fisherman um, or fisher person or whatever, people people might think that I'm talking about, like, people making a living off of it, which is not, not what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah, it would be, it seems like it might be maybe a little easier with anglers because they don't, you know, they're not there to, you know, reach a quota they're not like solely focused on making money they might actually have the if they're doing it as a hobby they might actually have the extra time and as you said if there's someone who's dedicated to that ecosystem and they see it as a, in as being threatened like that that seems to make sense yeah 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 exactly yeah there's lots of interesting things coming out here now you've mentioned that that aspect with the survey and stuff makes it a little more uh, on the social sciences end yeah. <laughs> um, do you find, I don't know if you get into this at all, do politics come into people's kind of choices about reporting those things? You know, I really wish that I had asked more questions around things like politics. And I wish that I had given more detailed questions regarding that when I, if they, if they said that they were unlikely to report were kind of on the lower scale of that. I asked them to elaborate their reasoning. And I wish that I had more asked more pointed questions around that sort of thing because I am so curious. One thing that I think I was probably one of the reasons why I was nervous to get too much into that was because I already had people, it's probably just a vocal minority, but I did have people like asking like, why are you asking this? You're from the government or... I'll do your survey if you tell me what party you voted for, or uh, I did your survey, but it seemed politically motivated, which I don't even know how I was just asking their opinions. And I really was, you know, that the point of the survey was not to, I really wanted to know them where they are. Like I couldn't have an agenda, a, a conscious one, you know, of course there's biases, a thousand percent. My biases probably 100% were probably in that survey, but it was not something I was trying to do. Um, and so I, I think that's one of the reasons why I was probably a bit nervous to get in, too into that. Um, but yeah, because uh, there'd be yeah. some folks who are just suspicious of, of scientists. As a journalist who meets suspicion on a regular basis, I think I can understand that. Yeah, yeah. And I asked questions that kind of danced around it that helped me kind of paint sort of the peripheral picture. Uh, like I asked them whether or not they think that the provincial government should be doing more to protect Albertan fisheries, whether they think the federal government should be doing more, whether or not they think um, individuals should be doing more, communities should be doing more. Um, I asked them what, and then I, I give them text response um, uh, areas as well, where they can kind of elaborate on some of those um, feelings. And even if there's not active distrust or thinking that they're going to be malicious with any data they give, there's also some feelings of apathy that have been expressed that I've seen. And, and of course, like, you know, with all this, I don't want to say that this is most, this is just things I've noted in at least some, uh, is feelings of even if you know where all the Prussian carp are, you probably won't do anything about it. You never do anything about anything. Uh, right which aren't things that I can really speak to. I'm not a part of the government. Um, maybe those things are true. Maybe they're not. Um, but this is the reasoning and this is the kind of the picture of what, what makes people think or make the decisions that they end up making. How many questions were on the survey? Oh gosh, I forget. 
I want to say, I want to say it was like 40. Yeah. How many many, uh, people did you get responses from? I guess how many did you ask and how many responses did you get? Yeah, I had about 3,500 people start the survey. Wow. And then I had about 2,500 complete the survey, um, which I mean, I was happy with. I was not expecting that many people at all. Um, and then for my analysis, though, I had to only use like complete cases. So people that had answered every question. Um, and so once I had done that, I think I was working with a data frame for a lot of my analysis. Data frame meaning like the the data that I actually had to work with for a lot of the analysis, I think was around uh, 1,200 or 1,500. Um but a lot more data than I think a lot of people get to work with when it comes to their survey results, which I which I feel really, really thankful for. The England community, the, the, the time that people have been willing to give to doing the survey, I am so incredibly thankful for because I think it ended up being a little bit longer than I might have thought it was going to be. And it's just it, it, the amount of time that has been put in, I, I, I'm so thankful that they put in. So 3,500 started. 2,500 finished? Yeah. And did you say 1,200 you used for something? I lost track of that number, sorry. Yeah, you can only really really use complete cases for a lot of analysis, like have each person answer each of the questions that you're interested in looking at. And sometimes people would skip a question or they would okay. use, say, prefer not to say. And depending on the scale of the answer, sometimes I can't include prefer not to says, um, depending on what I'm doing. Uh, so... Uh, a lot of things were kind of removed from that. Um, and yeah, I, I end up working with a data set of around 1,500 for a lot of that. 1,500? Yeah. Okay, so 2,500 finished, 1,500 were complete finishes. Mm-hmm. Were you able to see where the incompletes stopped? Like if there was a particular question that turned people off? Um. Yeah, I I can. And I even have timings for each question. I got way more data than I actually um, have the ability to look at for just a master's. Um, but it was pretty, it was more even than I thought it was going to be. Pretty much each question had, you know, I think it was like 100 people dropped off each question until a certain point. I don't know. It's been a while since I looked back at it. Um, but there wasn't that much of a specific question. Okay. That that did it. Yeah, I just wondered that if like you were thinking maybe there'd been a bit of a political element, if there'd been a particular question that kind of turned people off, but doesn't sound like it. Yeah, some of the ones that involved, if I asked for a text response, I think maybe some people uh, there was There's a little bit more here. of a jump there, but nothing in specific. Now you mentioned uh, this being kind of a citizen science uh, a component to it. Can you talk a little bit about what citizen science means and what its use is? Mm. Um, I'm sure that there's a really lovely, eloquent definition out there for citizen science that I'm kind of totally ignore and butcher. Um, but it's basically just using uh, people not necessarily affiliated with a project or doing research and are just sort of people out there in the public and using their experience and their resources and where they are uh, to gather data for actual research. So maybe it's people looking at pictures online and counting how many penguins they see in each picture. 
I think that's a citizen science project that I saw from somewhere. Um, and for me, it's reporting things, uh, reporting invasive species. Uh, invasive species platforms, reporting platforms are common everywhere. Um, I highly recommend everybody listening to check their local um, government levels to see what invasive species are in their area and what they should be doing and who they should contact if they find one. Uh, because uh, no organization organization can have eyes and ears everywhere. So um, citizen science is a super valuable tool in this day and age where you can just transmit information so fast um, into getting much larger data sets. How reliable is stuff like that? You know, it really, really varies depending on what you're trying to get. So for right. my data, um, I'm trying to get people to tell me whether or not they've seen a Prussian carp or a goldfish. Um, maybe I'll, I, sometimes I'll, I'll call it Carassius because that's the genus that they share together. Um, and there's no other Carassius in Alberta. Um, you should always call it Carassius. <laughs> uh, so the if they had seen a Carassius... Now, in Saskatchewan, they had done something similar. Um, Shana Hamilton at the University of Regina had a kind of similar project to me at this point. And, um, and for them, they asked to only do reports if they had a picture. And that's, that's mm -hmm. great because then you can confirm that it's a Carassius. You can't actually tell the difference conclusively between a goldfish and a Prussian carp right now. Um, they look they can look too similar, um, but you could you can ID from a picture that it's Carassius or not. Uh, now, for me, I really wanted to have no barriers to reporting, and whether or not there I necessary on a large if I had enough reports, whether or not I actually even needed to be confident in each one individually, in order to be relatively confident in the overall map suggested was something I was curious about. So I didn't, I, I, I asked for a picture, but I didn't require it. Um, and so thus I got like no pictures. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's one of those things that I'm curious for, for me is that like, in my case, uh, I have a lot of people reporting outside of the known area. Now there's a chance that they actually found a Prussian carp and that was not caught in our biological professional sampling methods, um, that is on the table. And that is one of the great things about, you know, citizen science and resource users being involved in early reporting systems is that they have, you know, the boots on the ground, that they can find those things. But another option is that they made a mistake. Um, and in Alberta specifically, we have uh, quillback, whitefish, suckers, moon eye, gold eye, all these fish kind of look like Prussian carp. They have things in common with them. Uh, and uh, it could be that they are mistaking those fish for Prussian carp, which would also be unfortunate because all of those are native species. And if you see a Prussian carp, you're supposed to kill it. Never let it go again. You can take it home and eat it if you want to. Otherwise, put it in the garbage um, and, and kill it. Um, and if that was being done to, you know, quillback or something like that or any of those other species that would be unfortunate um but in, in sorry to your question though um yeah it, it depends on what you're asking them to do for citizen science sometimes it is just as good as uh a professional doing it and sometimes you're really taking everything with grain salt it really just depends on what you're asking them to do that's pretty cool i did um 
I did a couple stories on bats in PEI this fall. And uh, people I spoke to from the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative, they do a lot of citizen science stuff with uh, white nose uh, syndrome, the fungal disease killed like mm-hmm. something around 90% of the bats on PEI. So they have, uh, they do things sometimes where they just like invite people to sit out on their deck at night and just count the bats going by. Yeah, I mean, it, it, things like even the Christmas bird count has been going on for years and years and years. And it's just birding enthusiasts count yeah. birds at Christmas wherever they are. Um, and those numbers, as well as like, you know, uh, birding apps like eBird and everything, they're a huge part of fair, uh, of gaining insight into actual bird distributions. Um yeah, no, there, there, there's so there's so many different ways that citizen science can work um, from the very accidental kind of like or incidental that people don't can do it really easy to being like really, really involved where they're taking samples and mailing them off. It can be a very involved process. But uh, yeah, it really runs the gambit. So when when are you finishing up this master's? Um, I'm, I'm helping to defend like early summer, late spring of this year. Um, but I have funding until the end of the summer. So I'll try to defend a little bit earlier but the re- and leave the rest of the summer to be kind of finishing up publications or reports that I want to write and kind of package the information. But uh, luckily, I'm not on super tight of a timeline. How long is it going to be? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Is that too painful to think about? I, I mean, it's double-spaced. My thesis that I'll probably submit will be like 100 pages. Who knows? And then the report, I'd like to have shorter so that um, managers can actually read it without having their brains explode. Um, right. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of depends. I kind of have these two separate chapters too, right? I have the chapter that's about the survey and what what factors affect an angler's willingness to report. And then I have the kind of related but separate chapter that I'm going to be kind of doing separately, which is the, to what extent can the report maps, like how do they compare to the sampling maps? So where did this idea come from? It's very particular. I'd never heard of this fish before. I have heard of Albertan anglers. (laughs) Right. Um... Let's see. So how the project came to me. Um, So I came back to Alberta after my um, undergrad and I was working as a um, as a natural history interpreter. And then I did a summer as an at sea fisheries observer. Um, And actually, that might even be a good place to kind of talk about the journey of what brought me into that this world of this project. Um, So kind of like the biggest part of the, of the puzzle of, uh, I think of who I am both professionally and personally is my experience going back to the East coast in the summer of 2018, after a year of being back home in Alberta um, to be an at sea fisheries observer for the ground fish fishery out on George's bank. Um, Now I, I doubt that OSHA has ever stepped foot on a fishing boat because uh, it was, bonkers doing that job but the most frustrating part of the job wasn't the working conditions i mean it's not like i had a harder time than the fishermen that have been doing it for generations it was the growing frustration i felt in the lack of confidence and clarity in so many of the policies and laws that 
I was on those boats to kind of keep tabs on and how so many of these inefficiencies were a product of what I was witnessing to kind of seem like a breakdown of communication and representation. So while there are many fisheries-related rules that make sense and everyone pretty much agrees make sense, policies like cod quota and small-scale lobster allotments and winter fishery openings were all based in in part on what ended up having I have ended up having reason to believe were faulty records from observers or improper data collection methods from people that did not give proper attention to knowledge of multi-generational resource users and also kind of the conflation of opinions of actual fishermen to those of the fishing companies because their opinions and their needs are not the same and so combine all that with the fact that they didn't tell us what research these policies were based on meant that I spent most of the time unable to defend the rules that I was asking others to abide by. And I, I basically just spent the summer feeling like a narc <laughs> and it sucked uh-huh. in a lot of ways. And the lesson from that whole experience that stuck out to me was how much knowledge and opportunity is wasted when researchers and government ignore the perspectives and experience of resource users. And how to harness that power is what really my current research came to be about. Um, uh, now, I, I was looking at my master's and I, you know, was really kind of thinking back to what my passion was in my undergrad, which is like animal behavior. And I was looking at, you know, maybe how do native species behaviorally respond to invasive species. But in that, I started thinking more just about invasive species in general. And and then when we got word that there seemed to be interest in funding available surrounding this invasive Prussian carp that everyone was talking about, uh, we kind of just jumped on it. So, um, and now currently I have a MyTax Accelerate, um, what's it called? I have a MyTax Accelerate Fellowship, kind of uh, where between MyTax and Alberta Conservation Association, which is my partner association, um, they each kind of pay half of my stipend and research costs. And I'm able to carry out then my research with Alberta Conservation Association, aka ACA, ACA is what it's called. What was that first thing? My tax? Yeah, my tax is like this sort of um uh organization that gives funding to people doing work or research um by finding uh, uh the accelerate fellowship is by finding partner organizations that they can work with to kind of have a joint goal. Because ACA was already looking at Prussian carp and they were already planning to spend a summer, another summer, sampling water bodies to figure out where they are. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just incorporate that into my project, have it be one of my chapters, or at least involved in one of my chapters. And then, uh, yeah, I just kind of wove my plans for my research into what ACA was already wanting to do. And uh, and that's how, kind of how the project got born, was out of what ACA already wanted to do, what managers were curious about, because there's a lot of conversation about, you know, they have the how they give give out messaging is in a certain way you know when they ask people to report invasive fish when they ask people to not move fish from water body one water body to another when they 
ask people to do these things, they want to know that they're asking those things right. You know, are we missing a piece here? So my survey is kind of trying to figure out if if, if we're doing those things right, how to how to really curate the messaging to people. So you got the idea for your master's when you were in Yarmouth working as a fisheries observer. You noticed that there was a disconnect between the actual fishers on the boat, the industry voices, and the government policies that were supposed to be controlling what the people on the boats were doing, but it wasn't actually related to the reality on the ground. Yes, yeah, and that's and I couldn't stop thinking about that. So even though part of me, when I went to look at my master's, kept on thinking about analog behavior, I kept on being drawn back in to that central lesson from that job, and and that's and that was the sort of the thread that I ended up pulling through my master's was trying to to, to yeah to address that. Yeah. So with your research, you're kind of working to bridge that gap between the fishers who you are getting direct input from rather than just some corporate representative of Alberta fisheries. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in this situation, I'm not, there's, there's plenty of things that I, you know, we can, you can get fishers perspectives on and there's lots of programs that the government and other pl- places are, are doing in order to understand that. Um, and, and that's certainly a part of mine, but another, the, the, the side of it is like also the messaging, you know, uh, of course, I'd, I'd love to believe having spent years doing it, that all I needed to do was to tell people to do the thing and they'll do the thing. But that's, it's not, you know, it's not that simple. Um, and if we want people to engage in conservation related behaviors, like willingness to report, um, then knowing what affects a person's decision to do those things is really important because just anglers in Alberta is way too precious of a resource to just ignore. There's so many of them, they're everywhere. And lots of them are willing to, you know, do a little bit of extra work to do, do reporting. If they can be harnessed to help be another one of the tools in the toolbox when it comes to fighting things like invasive species, then we should have to do whatever we can in order to figure out how we can take advantage of that. By including, you know, citizens and regular folks in this, do you think maybe that group of people will kind of lose some of the suspicion that they have towards the work that you're doing? At least the ones who are suspicious? You know, I, I don't know. It's it's a because I'm including them in this process, but I'm not the people, I'm not on the side. I'm not part of the process of what they're going to do with it, you know? Like, okay, now right. they, the government knows where all the Prussian carp are, but I'm not part, I'm not sitting at the table right now creating the game plan for how to address it. Um, right. They can sit on that report for as long as they want. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, and it's not just that either. I mean... <laughs> reporting platforms tend to be all over the place um i don't i don't want to badmouth anyone in specific but you know certain reporting platforms involve making an account and then and having to do multiple clips on a website to get to or doing all these different things and um you know involve a certain level of commitment and, and even maybe even technological literacy that you can't really expect everybody to have 
You mean for the people who would be reporting that they saw carp? Yeah, yeah. Or okay. really any invasive species. Like uh, most places right. have an invasive species platform because um, there's also lots of invasive plants everywhere. That's also a huge issue. Check your gardens, everybody. <laughs> but uh, Don't buy that one from Walmart. It might not be from here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's remarkable what they're allowed to sell at gardening centers. But um, but you yeah. know that, that that's also a barrier because for me, I created a reporting platform that involved just three fields they filled in super simple no need there's no account to be made it was just a single one page website and when i asked people why they didn't want to use why they didn't want to report they kept on saying it was too complicated and maybe some people understood what i was offering and they thought it was still too complicated but what i i also can't shake the feeling and this is you know just a feeling um, that they were remembering and having bad taste in their mouth about how complicated and like, I don't know, it, I, I feel like bureaucracy sometimes get a bad name, but bureaucratic sometimes the, these systems can be. Um, and, and these are all things that I can't, I, I can't necessarily fix just by interacting with them well on, on just myself. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. It's asking a lot of you to change the world's mind about everything. <laughs> yeah, and not even necessarily that I should change my own mind. Like, you know, it's one of those things where I can't, they, they're saying, what's the point of reporting? What are they going to do with the, what is the government going to do about Prussian carp, even if they know they're here, here, or here? And um, that's not within my wheelhouse to affect. I can't speak on behalf of the invasive species response teams. And in the government that creates different plans and methods and systems to prevent invasive species from taking hold, like I have some, I have some various impressions, but like it's it, that's not me, um, and so I can't say to them necessarily, uh, just on my own behalf that they're wrong in saying that. Um, not to say that they are right, um, just that it's not it's not my place within what I have control over. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're nearing the end of this, Masters. Your funding's coming to an end. You've got plans to publish and get that report out. What's next? Mm. Uh, the grandma question. Yes, you know. It, <laughs> what are you going to do with that? <laughs> I would love to, um, you know, uh, live life a little bit more hands-on. Um, Having all the work that I do all day, every day. One second. Oh, there's one of those loud things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We live next to a fire station. There we go. Um, I'll start over. Uh, one of the... After I graduate, I think that um, I'd love to, to, to live life a little bit more hands-on. Do some sort of job that involves me interacting with the public and also science. Um, I, I would love an aspect of um, really being an outreach person to be, if not a, a part of my job directly, then maybe if I can incorporate that on the side somehow, th those would be fantastic. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, it's anybody can say, I mean, right now with a certain, with, you know, everything that's been going on, it is it is difficult to say what the future will necessarily hold. I know that I, I don't want to be in uh, academia. I'm glad that I, I've done it and gone back to have a master's, but um, it is difficult 
being a master's student is really hard. Um, I think especially when you're doing a research-based degree. I've only had to take two classes for this master's degree. The rest of it has all been self-directed doing my project. Um, And that is... That is just a difficult way to live because you don't really have any points of gratification. Like, I assume I'll be gratified mm. after I'm done my degree, but that's, you know, delayed gratification on the scale of multiple years. That's that's difficult. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to perhaps getting a bit more of a boots on the ground job after this. Do you have anything in mind or are you just going to kind of look broadly? Um. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to do some sort of policy creation or uh, even just like a gathering, you know, oh gosh, I don't know if I can necessarily answer this. There's so many options. I mean, part of the issue is that I don't even know where I want to live um, location wise. And that definitely affects what sort of jobs I'd be looking for. Um, as much as I really love being in Alberta because my family's all here and I've done my master's here. You know, the East Coast holds a lot of draw for me as well. And I'm from Alberta and like every Albertan, I'm always like, oh, but there's also BC because, you know, BC is, is to Alberta what Nova Scotia is to Ontario. Um, uh-huh. And uh, but but yeah, it, it kind of depends on, on where I am. But I'm I don't know that doing my master's involved curating so many different skills. Uh that I'm I'm looking forward to using them. At the same time, this th- th- where it has been in my time, this time of my life has has been interesting because I also am not just my master's degree. You know, I I do a lot of volunteering. I do woodworking in the shop with my partner. I have really enjoyed spending time with my family. I have my life is about more than just my master's um, now, and I am excited to really give the proper room and, and and space for all the things that I want in my life going forward. Well, that's it for Natasha part two. We've got one more episode with her soon, but for now, here's the progress report. This is my once a month check-in, so here's what's up at OJT. I realized recently that I have no idea what my final grades were at Holland College, and I do not care. For those who don't know me, or didn't know me five years ago, this is pretty big. I've talked before about my struggles with perfectionism and being a workaholic. Well, it used to be much, much worse. When I went to university at King's in Halifax, I started getting good grades for the first time in my life. More than that, I was totally in love with the work that brought me those grades. Reading old literature and philosophy, going to lectures writing about them, and, of course, philosophizing over beer with my peers. This became my entire world. I had a weird first year of university, where I began at Dalhousie and took most of my courses at King's. I didn't even know King's existed until I enrolled at Dell and picked those courses. But when I found that school, I found myself. To be as corny as I can. I'd wanted to be a teacher for many years, But as soon as I began university, that changed. Now, it was professor. Now, I wanted to write the books, not just teach them. And I was pretty good at it. The schoolwork, I mean. Good enough that, with a ton of work, I got my first A+. That was the beginning of the end of my mental health for about two full years. 
Somewhere between first and second years of university, I'd become completely obsessed with schoolwork and constant progress. But where does one progress to after the highest mark? For me, it stopped being a line of progression and became a cycle of panic attacks, self-harm, and anger. Every second of my day was dedicated to school, and every second wasted filled me with angst. I'll spare you the details of how I began getting over this, but it involved spending a night alone with my thoughts, unable to read, write, or research. It was the first time in a year I'd been alone with just my thoughts. No books, no pens, no ability to read or research. And I finally asked myself, why? Why was I doing this? Who would I become? Sure, I've always been too hard on myself about wanting to do better, but what was this for? And I had no answers. There still aren't any good ones. I guess I thought I was doing the right thing after years of being a slacker, but I'd taken it too far. I'd forgotten how to live. I didn't get over my perfectionism instantly. I'm still not over it. This podcast and its basic ideas, and this segment are a testament to my ongoing battle. But every day, I learn a little more the meaning of good enough. It's funny, I've always said there should be no 100% grades on English or philosophy papers because there are no perfect answers to those kinds of questions. And yet, that's what I strove for, fundamentally disbelieving in it, but not realizing what I was doing at the same time. I won't say it ever made sense, Addiction doesn't work that way. And that's what this was, an addiction. So that's why it hit me so hard to realize my grades now mean nothing. That's the biggest achievement of them all. That, and the fact that I'm writing this from the Guardian office. Natasha Pentaluk will be back soon to tell listeners a bit more of what she does in her downtime. Until then, you can check out her CV on the website she built herself at natashalynn.ca. That's Natasha, L-Y-N-N She also suggested listeners check with local governments for invasive species in their area and what they can do to prevent the spread of problem-causing plants and animals. You can follow this podcast on Instagram at OJT underscore podcast and on Twitter at OJT podcast. The Facebook page is OJT on the job training. You can follow me on Instagram at logan.mclean.75 and on Twitter at loganmclean94. And finally, listeners, please check out my website, ojtpod.ca, for my written stories and photography. The podcast is available there and on all major streaming platforms. Please rate and subscribe and leave a review. Everything helps when getting a podcast off the ground. And if you like this show and want more interesting guests, listener feedback is the best way to help me reach new people and make that happen. This has been OJT on the job training. I'm Logan McLean. Thank you for listening.